ought to just go back and do it again. I know that's what you're thinking. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm so glad you got to join with me in such incredible worship this morning. We come to celebrate our risen Savior. But Mark tells us about what happened on Good Friday whenever Jesus was arrested and then put on trial. He says, then they led him out to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he would not take it. And they crucified him. And they divided his garments among themselves, casting lots to decide what each man should take. They crucified him at the third hour. And when they crucified him there at the third hour, the inscription of the charge of the inscription, the charge said, this is the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left, and the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he will be numbered with transgressors. And those passing him by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it after three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave him drink and said, let's see if Elijah will come take him down. And Jesus cried out or uttered a cry and breathed his last. What a dramatic ending to such an interesting figure in first century Palestine. Jesus was the leader of a movement. He had 12 close followers. At this point, there were only 11 because one had abandoned him. There were some other followers, namely some women. But let's not overstate or understate for that matter the movement that was happening during his lifetime. We know that there were those who were healed by his miraculous power those who were inspired by his incredible teaching. But no one would really stand with him in the end when his life was in peril. So there was really this small crowd of dedicated followers of Jesus at this point. And Mark's gospel tells us that they pretty much went into hiding at this point. One man, Joseph of Arimathea, went before Pilate, who was the ruling authority, and said, ask for Jesus' body so he could be properly buried. His associate Nicodemus helped bury him while some women watched on. And if this was the end of Jesus' story, we would not be here this morning. If the tomb 
in which uh, Joseph of Arimathea laid Jesus' body, still had the bones of that Nazarene man, history would look a whole lot different. But the fact of the matter is that we do not come today to simply celebrate a crucified king. More than a billion people, possibly, hundreds of millions today, will gather around the world celebrating Jesus in some form or fashion. And the reason for that celebration is that very early in the morning on the Sunday after his crucifixion, the borrowed tomb where Jesus' body was laid was found empty. King Jesus is not just a friend of sinners. He is not just a miracle worker or a teacher or a healer. He is not just a prophet or a restorer. He is not just some crucified martyr. King Jesus is our risen Savior. So join with me as I read to you from Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, the resurrection account, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen, and he is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. On the Sunday after Jesus' crucifixion, three women found the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid, and this, buried, uh, this borrowed tomb was empty. And an angel was there declaring that Jesus has risen from the dead, just as he foretold. And so I hope that this morning you will be reminded, or assured possibly for the first time, that King Jesus is in fact a risen Savior and has given us the hope of salvation and resurrection. So we're going to look first at verses 1 through 4. He starts off by talking about the Sabbath. We know that Good Friday is the day we remember Jesus was arrested and he was uh, put on trial and crucified. And it was the preparation day for the Sabbath. So the Jewish people used Friday to prepare for the Sabbath on Saturday. And Sabbath would begin at sundown. So Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and the women worked hard to get him buried before the sun set on Good Friday. And Sabbath began then at uh, sunset on Friday. And verse 1 says, when the Sabbath was over. So that would be on sundown of Saturday. That's how it would work. And so these women evidently went to purchase spices so they could anoint Jesus' dead body. At sundown, stores would open so that they could, you know, do what they needed to do. So Jesus had several female followers. And these three women were among those followers that he had. As you might imagine, women were not um, highly valued in this ancient culture. So there's something dignified about the fact that Mark tells us it was women and the, the significant role that they played in what is the most important event in human history. 
And their desire is to go to Jesus' tomb and anoint his dead body. And it demonstrates that they had great devotion for him. This would be an expensive thing. You'd have to buy the spices. You would have to do all that work. And then not only that, they knew that Jesus' body had been, been decomposing for over 36 hours. So the smell would be horrific. Nonetheless, they're committed to it. So on Sunday morning, very early, but after the sun has risen, they return to Jesus' grave. They knew where it was because they watched him buried. Evidently, they were so devoted and so grief-stricken that they forgot to think about, how are we going to move that stone? It never even crossed their mind. So here they are. Verse 3 says they're walking, and somebody thinks of it. It's like, oh, man, the stone. How are we going to move that stone? And it almost sounds as if they just continue to talk about it. What are we going to do with that stone? What are we going to do? And so what happens? All of a sudden there's a bend in the path possibly, and they can maybe see a clearing, and they see the stone has already been moved. They see it open. These women expected to find Jesus dead. Despite that Jesus had uh, prophesied about his death and a subsequent resurrection, they were hoping for the tomb to be open, not for Jesus to be alive. They might have desired that, but there's nothing in the scriptures to indicate they expected it. They were hoping for the stone to be moved, not hoping in the power of Jesus to raise the dead. You know, hope is an important thing for the human race. As humans, we are all hopeful. We are hopers. That's what we do. From the time we're very young until we are old, we hope. That's what we do. You know, children hope that their kids will give them what, exactly what they want. They hope they'll find that right egg today, you know. They hope that they'll make the team, they'll make the basket, make the squad, make the grade. And that continues all through life. We are hopers. So if somebody were to ask you this morning, what are you hoping for? How would you answer that question? What's the big deal in your life that you walk in here thinking, well, what I hope for is this? What is it? Is it something maybe related to work? Uh, perhaps a promotion, maybe a job, uh, maybe you're hoping for a relationship, maybe you're happy, hoping for something to be restored, maybe you have some significant trial you want off your back, maybe you're hoping for some sort of outcome with regards to your health or a friend or family members, what are you hoping for? We live in an age where people are actually losing hope. There's this epidemic of cynicism in our culture today. We have cynicism towards the government, cynicism towards uh, institutions, like institutions of higher learning, how they decide who they're going to let into their colleges. We're cynical about that. We're cynical about corporations, big pharma, big business, big oil. People are cynical about God. They're cynical about religion. They're cynical about the church. In fact, people are losing hope at such a high rate today that they are doing horrific things to themselves because they don't feel a purpose for their life. The Centers for Disease Control reported at the end of last year that for the second time in three years, the average life expectancy in the United States has actually gone down. From what I understand, this is like the first time in a century that the life expectancy in America has gone down. The medical advances here in the United States have sent us from 1919 when the age Expectancy was 55 to over 78 today. That's because of medical advances. But the medical community cannot solve everything. It turns out that what has caused life expectancy in the United States to drop 
is primarily two avoidable causes. Drug overdose and suicide. They are called the diseases of despair. We live in a perilous time where hope seems to be on the retreat. And so what I want to speak to this morning is hope in rather than hope for. We can hope for everything this world has to offer. But placing our hope in those things to satisfy us and bring us a sense of satisfaction, it's always going to fail us. You can hope in money. It's not going to satisfy. Hope in a person. Hope in power, in fame, in a relationship, in success, in pleasure. All of those things will fall short if that's what you're hoping in. Emily Dickinson wrote, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. It's beautiful poetry. But the scriptures speak differently about hope. The scriptures say that hope is an anchor for the soul. Something to sustain you when you hit the storms of life. It's not that thing with feathers that's threatened by the storm. So what are you hoping in today that might sustain you through the storms of life? It's fine to hope for, but you better be able to answer the question, what are you hoping in? I bear witness to you this morning that I hope in Jesus. One of my favorite songs. All my hope is in Jesus. Thank God my yesterday is gone. I've placed all my chips on him. Hashtag all in on Jesus. And my hope is that his life, his death, and his resurrection has the power to save me from the punishment for my sins that I deserve because I recognize that I will never measure up, I will never be good enough, I will never live honorably enough to deserve forgiveness and a relationship with our Heavenly Father and eternal life with Him. I need Jesus. So what are you hoping in this morning? Better stated, who are you hoping in? Mary Magdalene, Mary, and Salome were hoping for help to open the tomb rather than hoping in the power of the resurrection that's in Jesus. They were witnessing the most significant event in human history, but they didn't realize that King Jesus is our risen Savior who gives the hope of resurrection. So they looked for a dead man in a tomb. That's what they did. They found an open tomb, and verse 5 says they entered in. Can you imagine? Think about that for a second. I visit cemeteries because of having to do funerals, but I could never fathom walking into an open tomb occupied by a dead body. I, just, I, I wouldn't do it. But these women, women. So girls, this world tells you that boys are the only ones that are brave. Don't you believe it? Sometimes girls are much braver than guys will ever be. And in this story, the women walk in to the tomb. Verse 5 says, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe. Now Mark is likely leading us to understand this to be an angel. And we're thinking, I hope so. <laughs> because if not, who's the guy with the white robe on, right? What's he doing here? Matthew says in uh, 28.5 that it was an angel. Additionally, Mark says the women are amazed. Your version of the scripture may say alarmed because it could be translated both ways. I imagine anyone sitting up in a tomb would have been startled, these ladies. But there's an implication here that they are brought to fear as most everyone who ever encounters an angel does. 
We always talk about seeing an angel as if it brings comfort. But the scriptures declare everybody, when they see the angel, is scared. Because what does the angel say? Fear not. And this angel says, don't be alarmed. That's what he says. Then the young man wearing white speaks the good news that we commemorate today. And it's the reason why we worship in the Christian church on Sundays to this day. He says, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. These women went to the tomb with spices to anoint a dead body. Their biggest concern was that they wouldn't be able to move the stone away. And now this? The body is missing. Some angelic figure in a white robe says he's alive. Then he proceeds to point out the place. This is where he was laying. In case they were like, well, are we sure we're at the right place? Right here. You know, in, on Easter in churches today, we treat this as if this is the most believable story ever. But if anyone claimed to you that they knew somebody who died and was in a grave, and then a few days later got out of it, you'd say, yeah, right. Well, in the same way, there are those who believe that Jesus, sure, he was a historical figure, but they have a hard time believing that Jesus came back to life after dying. Perhaps that describes some of you who are here this morning. Some people believe that the women likely went to the wrong tomb. They went to the wrong place. Does that sound plausible? Well, the one thing is we know they saw him buried. So they knew which tomb it was. Even if not, though, Joseph of Arimathea knew where the tomb was. He would have said, ladies, first graveyard, not second one, you know. Or at least Pilate, who wanted to shut them up, would have demanded, Joseph, show me the tomb. Let's open it and let's look inside. So it's not very plausible that they went to the wrong tomb. Others believe the body was stolen. In fact, Matthew's gospel speaks to this, says that uh, the chief priests go to Pilate because they think, he says he's coming back to life, they're going to steal his body to, to make it look like that. So put a guard there. So they end up putting a guard outside of the tomb, is what Matthew says. In fact, Matthew says that when the, tomb is, the stone is rolled away, the guards were there, but they leave in fright. And then they go on, and Matthew says they were bribed into saying that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body. There's no evidence as reliable as the scriptures that indicate that a conspiracy to steal the body took place. Remember, the idea of resurrection is turning the Roman Empire upside down. If they wanted to show that the body was stolen, they could have produced the evidence. They could have done it right then, and we wouldn't know about this today. There are some who say Jesus didn't actually die. He just passed out. He got beaten and he passed out on the cross and they buried him in a grave, and a few days later, he tears out of the, the, the burial cloths and walks out of the tomb, presents himself to folks as whole. But medical advances, that's impossible. There's no way somebody could survive what Jesus endured. The point is this. There are many theories, but the ev best evidence presented and preserved for us is that Jesus died on Friday, and on Sunday morning, they went to the tomb where he was buried. It was empty. And the truth of what happened is that Jesus triumphed over death and the grave. So if Jesus is still in the grave, then there is no reason for us to be here. There's no reason for me to care as much as I do about how I interact with people. But if Jesus is alive, nothing else could matter more. I want my life to be a testimony to the fact that Jesus is alive. Because that's what matters. Jesus, risen from the dead, gives meaning to my life, and it can give meaning to yours. I have something to live for. I have a hope for my future. I have a hope beyond the grave. 
I have a purpose for interactions I have with people. I have a purpose for the things that I own, my possessions, my money, what I entrust to my children, all of those things, it has meaning. But to believe that Jesus is alive and to live as if he is not is worthless living. But we're tempted to do it every day, aren't we? Tempted to live as if he's not even alive when we believe he is. The three women walked into the tomb. The angel explains that Jesus is alive, and then he offers a command from the Lord. In chapter 9 of Mark, uh, we discover that Peter, James, and John were with Jesus whenever he was transfigured into his divine nature. And after they saw this, he said, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what you've seen and heard here. But these women discover Jesus is alive, and verse 7 says, go tell. The word is out. Specifically, he says, you go tell the disciples and Peter. They get split up here. And I think there's meaning for that, reason for that. When the disciples, uh, they fled at the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested. Peter followed on. He was in the courtyard there whenever he was uh, on trial. And it was there that he denied Jesus three times. They said, don't you know him? Haven't I seen you with him? Are you sure you don't know him? And he said, no, no, no. And then the cock crows. And he realizes what he's done and he weeps. And any plans for rebellion is just kind of shot. The angel wants the women to tell Peter and the disciple that Jesus, disciples, Jesus is going ahead of them into the Galilee. And that they're going to see him there just like he said he would do. And so we have to look back to be able to understand this. When they were having the Passover meal with Jesus, Mark 14 describes this. This is the Last Supper, Maundy Thursday, prior to his arrest, prior to his crucifixion. In Mark 14, 27, it says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. They do that, right? And then verse 28. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So Jesus foretells of his death. He foretells of his resurrection. And then he says, and you know where I'm going after that? The Galilee. It's incredible that he did that. Only God can do that. Well, the women hear this. And just like Peter and the disciples, they run. They flee the scene. They're just scared. What in the world is this? And the greatest irony is that they're told to tell, and they don't tell a soul, is what it sounds like. Mark says, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, of course, we know that's not the whole story. The other Gospels inform us, yes, they did go and tell. It's just not like what we maybe would imagine it. They're running down the roads, Peter, Peter, come quick, James, John. Evidently, they go home, they're scared, they gather their wits, they talk about it. And then from there, perhaps, go and tell the disciples and say, you've got to see it. It's empty. (laughs) They say he's alive. And they go on from there. The oldest manuscripts of Mark's gospel ends with verse 8. Your Bible might indicate that. um, Or it might might include all verses 9 through 20 with a note or without one. But this is really an odd ending to the gospel. It just ends right here. This is the end of it. But we know it does not end there, right? Mark himself, who is writing this account, is a testimony to the fact it didn't end because he's Peter's disciple. So something happened after this because Mark is here now writing it down for us all to know and believe. What we believe happened is that uh, uh, the disciples run to the grave. They inspect. He's not there. Then they start to see Jesus in the Galilee. 
And then he commissions them to go and flood the news into the world. And then this bodily resurrected Jesus ascends into heaven. I think, though, if we're honest, we would admit that the resurrection of Jesus does contain some ambiguity. We see this in the fact that the eleven doubted that Jesus was even alive. So there was some sort of doubt going on in the scripture here. They doubted he was alive. We know that one doubted so much he said, only if I see him and can touch the wounds will I believe you. There's no denying that on Friday, after his crucifixion, these guys are gone. They're in hiding. They think their desire to follow Jesus and their mission to preach his truth has come to an abrupt ending. There are other followers who, uh, like some that were along the Emmaus Road, and they're walking thinking, what happened while we were here? I can't believe this. We came in for Passover. Now Jesus is killed. And they start talking to this stranger on the road. Turns out it was Jesus. They were so confused they didn't even recognize him. Mary Magdalene goes back to the tomb. And she runs into someone. Thinks it's a gardener, but it's Jesus. She's confused. So there was confusion and ambiguity the day Jesus came back from the grave. But the angel declares he is going ahead of you as he told you. So if Jesus' promise here was true, then I propose to you today that all of his promises are true. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. By one count in the Bible, there are 7,457 promises God has made. Paul writes, every one of them finds a yes in Jesus. It doesn't matter how you walk in here today. You may have a no all over your life. Your mom may have told you no. Your dad may have told you no. Your children may tell you no. Your husband, your wife may have told you no. Your employer may have told you no. Your counselor, your therapist may have told you no. Your professor, the coach may have told you no. The IRS may tell you no. Your dog may even tell you no. But all of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. God, will you save me? Yes. God, will you forgive me? Yes. God, will you make my life clean? Yes. God, will you give me a fresh start, a new day? Yes. God, will you give me strength? Yes. God, will you give me guidance? Yes. God, will you give me wisdom because I don't know what to do? Yes. God, will you give me the ability to forgive because I don't want to be controlled by resentment? Yes. God, will you be with me every day of my life until I die? Yes. God, after I die, will you resurrect me and bring me into the greatest delight that no eye has ever seen nor ear has ever heard that lies in front of me? And God says, yes. Yes, yes. And the exclamation point at the end of that note is dotted with the resurrection of Jesus. It's the yes that you and I are invited to live in every day of our life. God has promised you the hope of salvation. He's promised you the resurrection if only you believe. And it's not just belief that the biographical details about Jesus. Or to say, well, the most plausible explanation is that he's alive. No, it's to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. 
that he rescued you from sin, that he went to the cross and took your punishment. His blood was shed so you could be forgiven. It's to believe that and to believe that three days later he came back to life. He's resurrected and he will come again. And it's to receive him into your life. Do you believe Jesus? Will you believe him? Will you receive him? The women went to the tomb expecting to find a dead body. But they ended up making the greatest discovery the human race has ever found, which connects to our lives today. The tomb was empty. The angel declared, Jesus is alive, and the messenger urged, now you go and you tell. King Jesus is our risen Savior, and he gives us the hope of salvation and resurrection this morning. The women came to the tomb asking, who will roll away the stone? God has decisively answered the women's question, not only for Jesus' grave, but your grave and my grave too. Jesus' resurrection destroys the power of death over our human lives, which seems to be the largest stone ever to move. So the message of King Jesus' resurrection transforms our hopeless end into an endless hope. Are you looking for hope today? Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. That is the gospel. Our Father in God, we thank you that we don't cry out to a dead man today, but we sing out in triumph. For you, Jesus, have triumphed over the grave. You've triumphed over sin. You've triumphed over death. You've triumphed over all the things that we face in life, and you've given us a hope and a future. God, as you speak to hearts today, I pray that we would respond. Help us to obedient, be obedient to you, Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I know some of you today come in, and you need to make that commitment. You need to say, yes, I believe him. Yes, I receive him. Well, you're going to have an opportunity to do that. Some of you say, you know what? We need to join the church. Been away for too long. It's time to lay down roots here. Some of you may have a prayer need. I don't know. But we're going to have an invitation. I'll be down front. If God's speaking to your heart, you respond. You come forward. So you stand. Our choir will sing as you respond.
so glad that y'all are here. It's nice when you're surprised because your daughter walked down the aisle and she made a decision for the Lord and is ready to get baptized. I just didn't know she was walking the aisle this morning and I was really encouraged by that. But I'm thrilled that all of you are here this morning. And I hope, like me, you have just been blessed by this time of celebration and uh, remembering the cross, but even more importantly, remembering the empty tomb. So next week, we hope that you'll join us. We'll have Sunday school and worship again. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave you here. It sounds like, or looks like the choir has a song for us, okay? So I'm going to pray the benediction. You remain seated while they close us. Father and God, we just thank you that we can be here together. And we thank you that we have the promise of your presence with us. Lord, we pray that you have been blessed by our gathering. God, and we pray that now as we walk out of here, we will live as resurrection people. People that believe that Jesus is alive. It's in Christ's name we pray. Clothed in glory and majesty is the Lamb of God, now crowned the King of Kings. Through his precious blood we are pardoned and stand now forgiven. He 